0: everyone and welcome back to the film score podcast. As mentioned, this is kind of a bonus episode, one week earlier than normal, but it's been a busy uh, month, so kind of had to double down. Today, my guest is one of the modern ambient legends, Tim Hecker. And I say that, and yet near the end of our conversation, you will hear him talk about why he does not like the ambient moniker, and it's actually something that is not unique to him. There have been others who have felt the same way, The, the limiting nature and perhaps the inaccuracy of that genre tag. But Tim and I jumped on to talk because of the new film that he scored, Infinity Pool, which is one hell of a wild ride. And I think there's an unrated cut coming out at some point soon, which <laughs> promises to be even wilder. Tim's score for this is really interesting as well. It's very frightening, very unsettling, and he crafts this using a number of very strange sounds and noises brought together largely through improvisation. It's a tricky score, and so is the film. They're pieces of art not for everybody, but If it's your style, there's a lot to like in both, and I'd recommend giving them a chance just because they're both so out there. Now, one note on this talk, it actually starts basically in the middle of Tim and I having a conversation. A little peek behind the scenes, I'll often have a quick small talk before I start an interview just to break the ice a little bit, especially when I haven't talked with the composer previously. But Tim and I were having such an interesting conversation that I felt like it would break their momentum if I stopped it, said, all right, are you ready to have the interview, etc. Instead, I we just hit record, and you're catching us in the middle of that conversation. And after several minutes, it Eventually morphs into a more typical interviewing style, but that's why for those first few minutes it's going to sound a little different. But that's just us in the moment. Now, of course, you can find out more about Tim on his site, on social media, although he doesn't use that too often, I don't think. And you can do the same for me. But after this episode and my recap of my favorite scores from 2022, which should come pretty soon, I'm back on the regular schedule. So sit back and enjoy. Did
1: you see the de- theatrical version? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, it's even worse with the NC-17. I mean, you're missing, <laughs> you know, a whole slew of depraved uh, scenes, let's say. I, I think the Academy, like, ignores horror, or I don't even know if I'd call this a horror film, but, like, sci-fi thriller horror, you know? Hybrid, we'll call it.
0: Yeah, and when it was first being advertised, I thought it was going to be horror, and I guess Possessor was kind of pitched as a horror film, even though I don't think it's really that horror either. It just exists in this weird sphere, and we find a need to put a label on it.
1: Yeah, and even calling something body horror or something, it's like, doesn't really work because it's quite different in so many ways, and you know... It's not thriller. It's not really sci-fi. Yeah. The beauty is the hybrids of those that it's confusing, you know. It's also comedy. The premiere I watched, it, like, everyone was laughing. It was almost, <laughs> like, one-liners, you know, and it's, like, if you come in, into it with a certain lighthearted sense of humor, it's, like, a totally different experience, you know. Well,
0: and that's that's something that I, I appreciate about it, and it does crack me up about those mindsets. Like, I saw a lot of similar reactions to uh, The Banshees of Inishir were like, it was labeled as like a dark comedy. And so I saw a lot of people thinking it was going to, for whatever reason, like a more lighthearted comedic movie. It's a funny movie, but it's also quite dark. And like, yeah, people just had a really tough time accepting that those two things can exist at once.
1: Yeah. Yeah. When it's like you come in with an expectation or a frame of understanding, it's like, it's almost better to like, not know anything about a film. And that's the downside of like trailers that sometimes just spell out everything. Or telegraph the corniest narrative arc aspects. And then you frame this kind of mental projection of what it is. And you're kind of rigid in your interpretation of it. And you almost like expect something and then, then judge it against its flaws perceived from the way the trailer was constructed, you know.
0: It's such a ridiculous mindset or... I mean, it's also an unfair framing or judgment because a trailer, especially a 30-second spot, can't tell you exactly what a movie's going to be and perfectly set your expectation. Yeah. If you've watched it and that's what your mind is set on, it's always going to be something different. There's rare times where I think a trailer is built to give you a mood. Yeah. Like that the film's going to mirror i mean one one example i remember is the movie only god forgives by uh, nicholas winding Refn, and you watch the trailer and it was coming off of drive and it looks like it's going to be you know a faster paced action movie and anybody who saw the trailer thinking it was going to be like that came out hating that movie because there is some action but it's really just like a very slow stylish movie
1: yeah it's like i guess it's hard of being a distributor that has to like convince people to leave their homes these days you know and it's hard to get people in theaters even if it plays in theaters you know so it's like i understand there's a marketing aspect that it's just you can't really get around you know in some ways and that's that's life you know i try to just put horse blinders on and not really listen to anybody or like have any frame of interpretation and that's always the best experience
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And especially too with, you know, so many times when a film is going to have twists and turns and you don't know exactly what the various beats are going to be. When you go in and all you have is maybe a a one sentence description and that's it. It's so fun being able to truly go along for the ride and not know where a turn is going to be and not know what's going to be on the other side of that turn.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, this film is like uh, constructed in that way. It almost like pivots because it starts in almost a genre kind of way of like a certain cadence and then it keeps hinging into derangement like slowly, you know. And so the expectation of that is like kind of requires like a kind of adaptation and like psychically almost, you know, this film's quite divisive in, in the sense that there's like people really love it or, you know, some people have really visceral reactions against it and it's like... It's kind of also a litmus test of like your own, I would say like flexibility and narrative and whether you can handle nonlinear narrative or things that are just kind of not really set up in a way that's like proper storytelling or something Mm -hmm. like that. You know, even that just gives me the kind of cringe, something doesn't feel right about like even enforcing like proper storytelling, what that means. And that's like, I don't know, just in the backdrop of like TikTok planet that we're in and the way attention spans are shorter and shorter, how... You can even talk about storytelling in that traditional way and really enforce it, where it's like it's a bigger question, I guess.
0: One of the aspects I think about pushback on nonlinear storytelling, and it was certainly something that I've been guilty of, is I think for a lot of people interested in film, you might read screenplays or read books like Save the Cat or just be familiar with a more typical three- or five-act structure or think that like a script has to have... These certain beat points, things coming in 10% of the way through and 25%, et cetera. And so when things deviate from that, it then feels like you're, you're ratting the cages against the like rigidity of what film is supposed to be. But then you, you you start going back, and there's, I just find having, having rules for any like hard rules like that for any art form is, I don't know, so constraining.
1: Yeah. And that's like, that's it. Like, do you want art or do you want like, content tube kind of entertainment and that's uh another litmus test of you know i don't know i i'm drawn towards the auteurs and people that are like fucking with expectation a little bit and you know it's like what's interesting in terms of collaboration is imposer. i mean no question there's so much genre language and that's it's quite stultifying quite generic that just i i like immediately like have a hard time with you know and drawn towards the the more open-ended creative approaches to storytelling and how music works with that you know
0: and is that what drew you and drew your eye to this project in particular i haven't seen brandon Cronenberg's first film but if you've seen possessor like it's not a surprise that each film he's going to do is going to be on the stranger end and pushing against those boundaries and doing something different so like was that enticing to you
1: yeah i mean i watched um i haven't seen antiviral I did watch Possessor ironically about like two months before and I like, it was in the middle of pandemic. I think it was like Mm -hmm. lockdown five and I totally loved it. I thought it was just such a palpable, great, dreary, like Ontario dystopian story that wasn't really futuristic. It wasn't like campy throwback. It was like a really odd idiosyncratic story that I loved. And just ironically, like a couple months later, got in touch about doing this film and I was like you know immediately intrigued and yeah
0: it's interesting mentioning that possessor is kind of futuristic and dystopic but it also feels like like it can be 10 minutes in the future for instance because everything else seems really relatable and that's kind of how infinity pool is too where yeah pretty much everything is feels like our world and then there's just like one aspect that is futuristic or a piece of technology that we don't have, but that is still portrayed in a way that is like still feels like this. I don't know analog age, run down piece of tech.
1: Yeah, I think it's partly the way it's set on that island. Yeah, they have this futuristic cloning technology, but like it's not evidence anywhere. Like how that manifests and it's like cutting edge ability to replicate bodies, and um, a lot of it like feels very analog. And I think it's also related to how he shoots film. He does not use CGI. There's from my understanding, like no green screen. It's a lot of in-camera effects. So there's almost a tactility to the image itself, even though it's very lush and like colorful and saturated at times, it's quite, um, it's not vintage, but it's also not Mm hyper-futuristic and just talking about music that informs a lot of how you approach the score itself, you know?
0: And with those in mind, how did those then influence the music choices? Because you're, there's all these possible influences. You know, on, on one end, it's this sort of exotic island tropical paradise that could be an obvious place of inspiration, although at times, like very early on, like the very first cue, you're getting these various shots of the island, and it's beautiful, and the music is like, totally subverting it and telling you no this might look beautiful but yeah this is the only beauty you're ever going to experience in this film but then like there are there are the futuristic aspects you know the analog aspects there's just so many things that you could have pulled from so how did you end up figuring out like what sounds to employ
1: well i mean the first cue is like quite a kind of like almost neo herman type of Almost like the camera's vertiginous, you know, is almost spiral in its own way. So there's something to that, like, noir aspect of just he wanted a, a mood right off the bat that's, like, really has you by the throat, kind of, in some sense. Not subtle about it. Not like horror cues, but, you know, generally the arc is that it it starts with more almost like placeholder or, like, stings or beat types of cues that that follow different languages of genre, and then it, at some point... Roughly about halfway through the film, it starts to unfurl into a kind of more floral language. But he was pretty clear at the beginning that he wanted an electronic forward score that, you know, had aspects of like thriller, horror movies in terms of its ecosystem, but obviously wanted me to do my thing. And so coming up with that language was the big challenge at the beginning. I wrote a bunch of music and sent it off at the editing phase, read the script and, you know, just started writing little, little doodles and things like that. I was kind of focused on a few things. One was like this kind of like almost a vocoder type of digital voice synthesis that almost represented some kind of heart of the island countries, like technology that led mm-hmm. to the replicants. So I was used working with voice transformation. I was also a big thing was taking cicada sounds. I like ripped like hours of YouTube Mediterranean cicada sounds. And then I had them trigger these string, um, you should call it like modular synthesis, but triggering these string types of pulses that end up sounding kind of like this banjo. And I was trying to make almost like a deliverance equivalent of some sort, like some kind of feeling of the backwoods, but of this mythical mm-hmm. island country that's vaguely Baltic, but Black Sea, but also not at all. The percussive patterns were from cicadas, essentially, enough. and of that was a kind of another element that was like infused throughout the score and then just writing music you know uh, a lot of electronic stuff and the only um, actual studio session i had was french horn um in a bunch of the cues you know everything else was just written by me
0: that's wild <laughs> so at that point did you get absolutely sick of the sound of cicadas because they can like when you're out at the right time in Chicago, for instance, like and there that sounds going it is such a powerful, deafening, like slightly unnerving sound.
1: Yeah, if you've ever been to the Mediterranean in like afternoon, there's just this in the summer. It's just this palpable, like the the landscape on the water just kind of like pulses with these bugs that live underground. <laughs> and then make their sound and it's just, it's crazy. It's hypnotic. And, um, I just thought a lot about that. And it was like, kind of, you know, I tried different instruments that didn't really work. I was considering like hurdy-gurdy and like, mm-hmm. what would be some kind of instrumentation that would almost like signify like a kind of regressive, but also future forward dystopian mythical island day. And I was trying a bunch of different things and, you know, yeah, ended up the way I did with the current score.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. You know to to take us on a little tangent, then how similar is that sort of approach with your approach to writing music for your solo Tim Hecker releases?
1: You know, there's similarities for sure, but writing to picture is a totally different thing and and the more I do it the more um, you know, it's a skill, incredibly so. I think everything starts with an improvisation, you know, in a general sense, like writing a melody, a line, a short motif that, you know, becomes like some kind of heart and soul of a piece, um, no matter what its end purpose is, you know, it needs to have some kind of core, whether it's like a chord pattern a uh, progression or it's, you know, some counterpoint type of thing or a melody. And then from there it expands, you know, into its like journey it needs to take. And yeah, I would say like improvisations, at the heart, like, Everything I've done, exploration and, hmm. and giving some oxygen to just think a bit bigger than the specific cue, you know, and what needs, you know, something to be done. I don't like just walking up to a dog and opening a bunch of string instruments and writing a thing and then prints. I mean, it's always a lot more convoluted. It's a lot, um, a lot of, yeah, play and improvisation and, um, writing over things and then ditching the thing that was there before, like. Iterations of transformation is what I really love as a composer.
0: Doing those iterations, do you ever, you know, and, and I don't know how many versions of, uh, let's say, a particular cue or melody or run through something that you might do, but do you ever get to a point where you've done, let's say, 20 passes, 20 attempts, 20 versions of something, and you either go, you know what? I, I feel like I'm kind of spinning my wheels on this, or oh, yeah. uh, maybe I should go back to version six and scrap the last 14 ones that I've done because I'm getting nowhere. 100
1: percent. I think like a real indicator of like skill at writing music is to be savage in your own, severe in your own editing, and knowing when it's cooked, you know, or when it's overcooked. And very often, it's like the first take is the best. There's something about it that's just, it's this unchained, that's liberated, that doesn't have this kind of panging after something, you know, that it doesn't work out. Sometimes it is version six, very, very rarely is it version 20 though. You know, when you're doing a cue and things need, you know, the subtle changes you can, that require like shaping and forming and hitting beats and stuff like that, you may need 20 versions. But in terms of writing the heart and soul of Mm. some music, I think that that's often done right off the bat. Like the last cue, for example, of Infinity Pool is just improvisation piece, really. Like literally, I couldn't do it again. I tried to like make a better version with more space and having channels separated so they could be mixed properly. But in the end, that piece was just something I did in like about a year ago in February last year you know, upon reading the script and seeing a couple dailies just to feel like what, uh, this film was kind of materializing into, you know, it was impossible to, to go back cause I didn't, um, stem out my improvisation and it was a stereophile. Most of the time I tend to record a bit, bit more, but it requires a lot of hard drive space and being ready that when the, the motivation kind of strikes you and the, the kind of inspiration you're able to actually record that properly.
0: Do you then get to a point sometimes where maybe an an improvisation isn't you know hundred percent spot on, but also there are aspects that you really want to keep and have like a difficult time replicating it?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and that's like uh, requires some flexibility and mm-hmm. openness about maybe you just do another improvisation of the first few bars of a piece and then cut into the original and you know, a lot of mutations and mutants in terms of um, it doesn't need to be all in one take in one room. I've done other scores where it's a lot more live instrumentation, a lot more writing out um, pieces in advance and doing sessions with real musicians. But when you're doing a real fast hybrid electronic score like this, it's, you know, a different approach and it's a lot more plastic and um, mutable and malleable, I should say.
0: On that point, talking about putting together something quickly, but also that you were working at least part of it back in February. What was the, the timeline for this score like? When were you working on it, and how long was the process?
1: I think the conversation started in late January, and then um, by February, I, was, I took a couple weeks in, in Mexico writing music in Oaxaca, and I um, was writing my own solo music, and I was also writing some of this stuff. I think I was ready to go in March. It ended up being pushed a bit with editing. The editing I think carried on a couple more months, but I was like by I would say May in the deep of it through till the summer. And then we had mixed probably in July or August. It was done. I would say it's about two or three months of like intensive focus on it. It was a lot of music. I think there's something like eighty minutes roughly of really of music to picture. I think a few of the pieces didn't make it on the soundtrack. But I kept most of it, you know, and I, I did keep the sequencing quite linearly where I think like some of the more musically interesting cues are like later in the the film and the soundtrack. It's still set up the way to respect the kind of lineage of the arc of the film.
0: On that point, then, well, first, and it's something that I want to get to a little later is talking about the actual amount of music and the balance of that between sound design because some of the sequences just get so wild, it's like hard to even know what's what. Yeah. But talking about the soundtrack release itself, what's the process of paring it down from 80 minutes to, I don't know what it is, you know, 50 minutes, and then how and when do you make the decision of whether to move the sequencing so it becomes kind of its own bespoke journey versus keeping the sequencing relatively intact to mirror the film?
1: I don't know. You know, I've done it both ways. Like, the last score I did in Soundtrack was called The North Water, which I mm-hmm. believe I did a lot more non-linearly and, like, you know, made a listening experience based on the music of the soundtrack. But some of those were pieces that ended up getting chopped. I kept longer versions. I made it a bit more like... um a kind of notepad of that period of my my life uh, working on this project, and um, you know this one's more straightforward. this is the score in it, almost documentarian style, no edifice, no crossfades, no layering of pieces, no extended versions. If it's on the soundtrack it's in the film, and there's not much change. Where in the north water, I really made it a creative you know music from the score and you know there's some rejected versions even in there that I thought were great music I think I didn't add too many pieces that didn't really work out but this was kind of like what I turned my attention to during the pandemic was scoring and was a great opportunity to expand on something I've always wanted to do and um I went went full guns wild into that you know and it was really great
0: like how long has that interest been simmering within you I know that there're always like quite a few musicians composers that are making their own music that have some sort of desire to do it but i guess it is it's been pandemic push but it really seems like the last year and a half two years with the north waters and then with infinity pool that like and maybe it's just the the bigger stage but like it it feels like a much bigger move on your part
1: yeah i think it's like uh even if you're told your whole life that you're make cinematic music or whatever uh it doesn't really equate to like a lot of quality scoring opportunities and grateful for all the like directors that have reached out in the past and wanted to work together. I have done a few things in the past. Definitely. that have been interesting, but that kind of back catalog or that kind of um, work history doesn't amount to much in terms of like being trusted with delivering score to picture with sophistication and elegance on time, under time pressure and financial pressure. It's a totally different thing. It's a totally different skill that you really are expected to kind of grow into and and people get different opportunities at different times and I'm just grateful for the people I've been able to work with thus far you know and I think it's all been in its right time and I'm not looking to do this full-time but you know it's definitely something I enjoy doing. I feel like uh, I've grown a lot in this kind of approach to writing music. Also I have to say like you know my music editor Hannes Plattemeyer was like super helpful in this like we work a bit different than a lot of traditional music editors that are more of a like pro tools type of uh setup or you know liaising between the composer and the mix stage um hanas was very involved in the creative aspect in mm-hmm. terms of like working on specific cues with me and you know some of the ones were more his work than mine even in terms of editing a few of the uh, dream sequences and stuff that were quite like hyper chopped yeah it's like the people you work with definitely matters as well in terms of being able to handle all the the pressures and constraints and deliverables that you have to do doing film composition.
0: Do you think that maybe some of the, the stylings of your solo music, and especially, and sometimes I hate using like the term ambient, but like if we want to put broad buckets of making music that's more ambient facing, let's say, do you think that has affected or been an impediment to moving into scoring just because it's not necessarily the the type of music you hear all the time in films or shows
1: i think it's used a lot like i think a lot of the music history of the last 20 years has been churned up by film composers and kind of Mm -hmm. replicated like you know usc's composing graduate can genericize a bunch of like hybrid ambient electronic music in about 10 minutes you know whether it's like tour grade or not is like um is another question but I think that um, I bristle, like I'm grateful that I'm seen as like a ambient musician or have that history, but I've really like tried to not adhere. AI. like, I've always thought that the term is not helpful. I've like never tried to follow in like the footsteps of some, uh, let's call it like a Neo Brian Eno type of um, mm-hmm. form of making music. I object to the idea of the original characterization of ambient as you know, sonic furniture in a room. I just think it's corny. You know, I like music that can function at full blast, like almost antagonistically present in the sound field or stuff that disappears into like the ether, you know, that functions on both levels. That's something more interesting to me as a concept and I don't think that's ambient. And I've gone to the point where I just like try to subvert it. You know, like I just, I have a record that's coming out in a few months that's, pulses that I just couldn't do pads or placid soundscapes like that type of music is like comes naturally to me but I, I also feel that ambient has become this kind of um, almost like stultifying genre it functions almost the way like a James Turrell who I love but is you know deployed in in the backdrop of keeping up with the Kardashians or something you know it's like it's it's almost like a corporate panacea for our anxious times I want music to function on our a lot higher level than just be a kind of auditory Xanax, you know. And then it's just also a form of music uh, replicated for the times we live in now. I still believe in, yeah, music having a different, more complex function with listening and experiencing sound.
0: Reminds me of, I think it was Harold Budd who, like, fervently objected to being called an ambient musician and composer as well yeah 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 I think he was like very anti that I mean even even Brian Eno I know that he's like considered one of the godfathers of it but at the same time he has such a wide range of music that he's done too to even have an idea of what ambient is and then push him solely into that hole is very limiting as well
1: well, I think he himself owes a bit of the blame on that because he, you know, is quite a uh, eager to almost formalize the, the mode and explain mm. it in a pedantic way. And his essays on ambient music at that point in the liner notes of some of his early ambient series works, I mean, that's on him and it's not his fault that that became kind of like genre kind of codifying or canonized or whatever. It's not to disrespect that, I just think that thinking about the function of music in terms of society and whether it's you know for listening to music on its own or with picture is a much more complex thing than that
0: and do you think part of it is also and and this is a you know a more broader concept or idea, but like people's relationship to listening to music changing over time, part of that is for me i I can remember I don't know. 15 18 years ago like getting a new cd and then putting it in my cd player and just like sitting in bed listening to it over and over and I just obsessively because you oh, walked yeah.
1: to a store and got your money and bought it and then you looked at the liner notes and you you thought about the process and it's enigma of like you know renting an expensive studio to record all that and yeah. then the process of making the cd and its singularity and its like importance and the way you got kind of excited about it is really different than the way it is now delivered through streaming platforms no question um listening has changed there's no question about it it's you know in some ways cheapened music societally and i think that that's that's also something that's happened in cycles in the past you know music's been like the kind of jungler if you look back and like Oh man, I'm gonna get the history wrong, but just like the nature of like the bard playing under the king's table, trying to get a bone of meat thrown down, you know, is like literally the hobo that went from town to town. I'm talking like 18th century, roughly. Um, I sound probably crazy discussing this, but there's been <laughs> cycles in which music is venerated and then disparaged. And I think we're not in a full disparage cycle, but it's happened in the past. And I dig streaming platforms. And digitization of music's had a massive impact on the way we listen, you know, it's not the sole cause, but it, it's changed things. And going back and wishing we were in the golden era of recording where it's vinyl or CDs, you know, even CD was like a kind of period of malaise, you know, the digitization was taking out the analog body of music into this vaporous code, you know, and now we look for these like vintage CD um, converters that had more warmth than you know you get through the Spotify out and out. so it's ironic in some ways. Yeah, I just think that you know relationships to listening are always in flux historically, and
0: you know? hmm. yeah, and that's I don't know. I personally always have a tough time with it because like I listen to music digitally, like streaming, and then I, I buy a lot of digital music, but there's a part of me that misses going to like when I, was, when I was in college, going to the, the used music store where you wonder how the hell, like, are they even in business and going through yeah. the, you know, 10,000 CDs they had or for a period where I had a record player, like going through the vinyl and having that tactile feel of it and developing a much stronger connection to whatever the single piece or, you know, maybe you're buying five things, but like there's just something that's so much, I don't know, so much closer
1: lead you on these tangents. If you're like, you pick up a Philip Glass CD when you're 17 and you're like, who's Michael Nyman? And then you go off and you know, you're, you're in a whole other universe and that, you know, might lead you to other things. And, and that type of tangential listening has kind of been decapitated a little bit in the way accreditation happens in music. And like, it still takes a bunch of people to make a record that might have one person's name on it. You know, when you lose the liner notes, you lose that kind of depth of like, if you're a music geek, like, seems like we both are, you know, you lose that, that you have to dig harder. Obviously, there's ways you can do it, but it's it's not as easy. And uh, I still think, like, you know, it's a great time to make music. I think that it's harder than maybe it was 20 years ago. I don't know. All I know is that I'm grateful to be able to do this, you know, for a living. Um, I never planned on it happening. I, I trained as a historian. I, you know, also had a day job at some point in my life. I, I've avoided... Being a careerist out of doing this, and it, you know, despite my efforts to kind of sabotage that, it it kept happening and worked out, you know. Yeah. So it's odd, and I'm super grateful. There no, is no question about
0: it. Well, I, I think that's that's a good place to to wrap up after yeah after you know ruminating on the the malaise of modern music, having a <laughs> having a nice positive note to leave everyone off on. Absolutely. But Tim, uh, once again, I I really appreciate you. Sitting down to chat with me for a little bit, talk about Infinity Pool, and then you know go on a, a twenty-minute winding tangent about uh, music generally. But I love it.
1: I think that the philosophical and artistic stuffs like really the kind of the great fuel behind it. You know, the reason I personally keep going. You know, thank you so much.
0: Hey, thank you, man, and uh, have a great rest of the week.
1: For sure. You too. Take it easy.